Good day, everyone. It's January 8th of 2024, and we have a great show for you today. First, Alec Murdoch, new judge, new trial. Here comes the Crumleys. They're getting ready for their trials. Someone did not get the memo in the uh, Koberger matter. And uh, some more Gypsy Rose prison confessions. Update on our dumb criminal from last week, and then our dumb criminal of the day. Let's talk about it. Hi, lawyer. Lawyer. Good day, everyone. My name is Scott Reich, and this is Crime Talk. Thanks for joining us. You know the drill. Subscribe if you haven't. Like if you do. Leave me a comment below and hit that little bell for notifications. And remember, you can listen to us on any of your favorite podcasting apps. All right, let's go ahead and open the record for January 8th of uh, 2024. And first on the docket, Alec Murdoch, new judge, new trial. Well, the legal stage is being set for a hearing to determine what may have been dubbed the trial of the century. And is it going to result in a retrial for the convicted murderer and fallen attorney, Alec Murdoch? Well, this week, there was a little bit of activity in the case, some legal motions filed in the double uh, murder case of Alec Murdoch, who was obviously convicted back in June of 2021. Doesn't that seem like an eternity? He was convicted of the June 7th, 2021 murders of his wife and son and sentenced to two life sentences back in March 3rd of last year, but has since petitioned the court for a new trial based on allegations of jury tampering against court official, uh, that's right, the clerk, Rebecca Hill. So a status conference and a hearing have been scheduled. The Supreme Court has issued court orders removing any contact with Colton County officials and pre-hearing briefs and motions have been exchanged this week between Murdoch's criminal attorneys and the prosecutors with the uh, attorney general's office, which obviously prosecuted all of the uh, cases against Alec Murdoch. Well, here's the latest. First, an evidentiary hearing on the allegations against the Colleton County clerk of the court, Ms. Hill, who accused of multiple instances of trying to influence the jury as well as allegedly committing ethics violations before most recently admitting plagiarism in her recent book on the Murdoch trial has been scheduled to begin on January 29th at 9 a.m. And that is going to be tentatively set at the Richland County Judicial Center in Columbia, South Carolina. Now, before this hearing, there will be a public status conference at about 9.30 on January 16th at the Richland County Judicial Center. This conference originally was set for January 15th, but was rescheduled due to uh, Martin Luther King holiday. And um, apparently the vice president is going to be uh, coming there as well at or about that time. The uh, court's spokesman mentioned the media guidelines, which will include the possibility of public streaming and TV broadcasting. And that decision is going to be announced later this week. So as you may recall, Judge Clifton Newman, the uh, upstate judge presided over Murdoch's six-week double murder trial down there in Walterboro and handed down the uh, multiple life sentences. Well, Newman has since recused himself from the case and in a December 18th of 2023 court order, the Supreme Court Chief Justice Donald Beatty ordered that Judge Gene Towell, who is a retired Chief Justice, be assigned exclusive jurisdiction over the Murdoch's motion for a new trial. So then on January 3rd, the Chief Justice issued an order that all documents, orders, and correspondence related to the Murdoch motion for a new trial must be filed with the clerk 
of the Supreme Court of South Carolina and not in the Colleton County where the murder case uh, was originally tried. Now, the court noted because defendant's motion for a new trial contains allegations related to the conduct of the Colleton County Clerk of the Court, I find it would be inappropriate for documents in this case to be filed in Colleton County, the Chief Justice wrote. On January 3rd, Murdoch's defense attorneys filed a 21-page pre-hearing brief that reinforced its position that Hill's attempted taint of the jury's opinion in the Murdoch case violated his right to a fair trial to seek fame and fortune in her book, Behind the Doors of Justice, which is no longer in print because of plagiarism issues. Anyway, in the brief, the uh, attorneys for Murdoch argue that there are several points and uh, petition the court for several demands. First, Murdoch does not need to show actual bias on the part of any juror to obtain a new trial. If Mr. Murdoch proves his allegations that Ms. Hill communicated with the jury about the evidence presented by the defense during his murder trial, the South Carolina and federal law requires that Mr. Murdoch receive a new trial irrespective of whether the court believes the outcome of the trial would have been the same had Ms. Hill's jury tampering not occurred. Then, to prove his case, Murdoch only needs to prove by a preponderance of the evidence that Hill made statements to at least one deliberating juror about the merits of the evidence presented at trial, regardless of what other jurors or alternate jurors testify to. And Murdoch plans to use Hill's emails, text messages, and telephone records and other testimony from court staff and testimony from a uh, documentary evidence from persons involved in the production of her book, uh, Complaints Against Hill, and the result of investigation into her wrongdoing, which could include ethics and plagiarism allegations. Now, Murdoch also alleges that the emails released to journalists in response to a FOIA request show that Hill was sending emails directly to prosecutors and law enforcement witnesses for the state during the trial about the merits of testimony from defense witnesses under cross-examination at that very moment. They note, and it was attached to the brief as their exhibits, that include copies of those emails which were not shared with Murdoch's defense team. Now, the clerk, Ms. Hill, should not be allowed to invoke her Fifth Amendment right if questioned during the January 29th hearing because she has already signed an affidavit denying the allegations. Now, Murdoch requests that the state produce its discovery uh, for Murdoch to prepare for the hearing. Murdoch also requests that the jurors and Judge Newman, if needed, be questioned in camera and not publicly during the hearing with other witnesses questioned in open court. Now, Murdoch argues that counsel for non-parties should not be permitted to participate in these proceedings, nor should they be allowed to offer legal filings on the matter, because as you may know or may may not know, attorney Eric Bland, who has represented several of the Murdoch financial victims and now represents four jurors involved in the murder trial, has requested to participate in the status conference and hearing. I guess one could say they have the same interest uh, to make Mr. Murdoch go to prison and to get all of his money, which is clearly what the attorney has done. But to represent the jurors now, uh, I think there may be a little bit of conflict there, but maybe it's just me being overly cautious and ethical. That's all. Needless to say, Mr. Murdoch is objecting to uh, the non-party's participation. Now, everyone is entitled to an attorney, for sure, 
But I'm not really sure why the jurors are going to say, I didn't talk to anybody. I didn't talk to Miss Hill, unless, of course, maybe they need to invoke their rights that maybe they gave a false statement. I don't know. It seems a little odd to me. Well, also on January 3rd, attorneys for the South Carolina Attorney General's Office and the uh, state grand jury filed a motion for discovery as well as a uh, pre-hearing brief in opposition to Alec Murdoch's request for a new trial. Obviously, that's what they do. The prosecution's briefs argue that Murdoch is not required an evidentiary hearing on these matters because not one juror who deliberated on his case has either indicated that their verdict and uh, was affected by any improper conduct by the uh, clerk, Miss Hill. Now, the primary party making allegations was booted off the final jury for a violation of the court rules and did not deliberate. And the state argues that Murdoch must not only have the burden of proof that these jury tampering allegations occurred, he must also prove that these actions actually prejudiced him. Finally, the state filed a motion seeking a protective order to keep the identities of the jurors and the jury-related personal information secret during the process. Seems reasonable. Throughout this uh, post-conviction process, though, Mr. Murdoch has denied that he has killed his wife, Maggie, and younger son, Paul. And uh, Hill, while admitting plagiarism, has denied jury tampering allegations. So here's what this boils down to, ladies and gentlemen. Alec Murdoch has got himself a hearing. The question becomes, what does he have to prove and what is the burden? The state says you must show, first, that there was some misconduct by the clerk, Miss Hill. So there was tampering and that it basically changed the outcome of the trial. Obviously, the evidence that came out was pretty overwhelming against Alec Murdoch, and one could say, hey, even if she made comments like, oh boy, that guy, don't believe that nonsense, is that jury tampering? Probably is under the spirit of the law. But is it gonna change the outcome when they're all like, oh yeah, this we were here for six weeks and we're gonna do this in three hours? Guilty, guilty, guilty. Pretty overwhelming evidence. So it has to be prejudice. Murdoch's attorneys are saying, hey, no, no, no. You're violating his fundamental right to a fair and impartial jury. And the jurors are only supposed to receive any evidence, legal and competent evidence that comes in through the court. Not even the judge makes comments about that. And so if the clerk is making comments throughout the process, they may be, I don't know, incidental, to use the word, but the fact is they're doing it. No one should be talking to the jury during the court process. Most courts give an instruction. If somebody approaches you and wants to talk about the case, you need to report that immediately to the judge. Why didn't they do that? Well, it was, when the clerk is the one doing it, you probably think you're okay. So, listen, for crime talk purposes, Nobody wants the Murdoch trial to go again more than me. But I'll tell you my motivations, ladies and gentlemen. It was huge, huge viewers, huge, huge views during that trial in the commentary. Because we followed that case literally from the beginning that started with the boat accident case. Why? Because I followed the Beaufort Gazette down there in South Carolina because that's the Crime Talk Southern Command down there. I love that place. But... The evidence was pretty overwhelming. Would it have made a difference? That is going to be the key legal issue that the judge needs to decide upon. The judge rules against it, so be it. Then Alec Murdoch takes his case up to the South Carolina Supreme Court and then ultimately up to the United States Supreme Court 
But first, they have to develop the factual record that there was, in fact, something nefarious going on by the court clerk. And when jurors are instructed, don't talk to anybody about the case, you can't talk to your family about the case, but I'm not aware of an exception that says the court clerk can comment and give commentary on the case. You can't do it. So I think the clerk screwed herself, and the whole fact that she's out there writing a book, it just stinks. Stinks, stinks, stinks. We'll see how things go here at the end of the month. Next, here come the Crumleys. That's right, the Crumleys. We're facing involuntary manslaughter charges for the deaths of four students killed back in November of 2021, a school massacre. Well, they want the judge to exclude the assistant principal's testimony and details about how the victims were killed. Two were shot, execution style, and they argue that what happened inside the school that day is completely irrelevant to their case and could unfairly inflame the passions of the jury. Well, the prosecutors say that old James and Jennifer Crumley, they're trying to sanitize the horrific details of the Oxford High School shooting that their son carried out and to distance themselves from the devastation that they wrought. Yes, that's true. And the prosecution is asking the judge to put an end to it. So in some uh, late afternoon filings last Friday, the prosecution urged the Oakland County Judge Cheryl Matthews to allow at least two adult witnesses to the deadly school shooting to testify at the Crumley's upcoming trials, including an assistant principal who gave mouth to mouth to a dying boy who had been shot in the head and said that it took her months to get the taste of blood out of her mouth. Now, the prosecution disagrees, obviously. This is a homicide case. Evidence of the killing is unquestionably relevant and admissible. The prosecution says that James and Jennifer Crumley, by their own gross negligence, caused the death of four students by ignoring their troubled son and then going to buy him a gun instead of getting him mental health, the same gun he ultimately used in the shooting. Now, the four students who died were Hannah St. Julia, Tate Meyer, Madison Baldwin, and Justin Schilling. Seven others were injured, including a teacher who the prosecution intends to use as a witness. Now, according to the prosecution's filings, the jury needs to hear from the witnesses who saw firsthand what happened inside the school that day. Needless to say, the uh, to the chagrin of the uh, Crumleys, who uh, filed back-to-back -back motions trying to block that witness testimony, the prosecution wants the juries to hear from Mar Molly Darnell, a teacher who was shot in the arm just six inches from her heart, and the assistant principal, Christy Gibson Marshall, who tried to breathe life back into the student after a bullet had exited his eye. The prosecution also plans to show jurors school surveillance video of the shooting itself. The defense has objected, and the judge issued an order Friday stating that she would let video footage of the shooting be shown at the trial. The prosecution, meanwhile, has accused the Crumleys of glossing over the uh, shooting itself. And the uh, Crumleys claim that the gruesome detail will inflame the and potentially confuse the jurors about the legal elements of their case. The uh, prosecutors, however, wrote the testimony about how the four victims were killed is undoubtedly damaging to the Crumleys, but that does not make it unfairly prejudicial at all. The evidence will not confuse the jury. Quite the opposite. The evidence will give the jury a complete picture of how these brutal killings took place. Now, the prosecution has long argued that the Crumleys, more than anyone else, could have prevented the shooting had they disclosed to school officials when they were summoned over his troubling behavior 
that they had just bought their son a gun. On the morning of the shooting, Ethan Crumley had drawn on a math worksheet a picture of a gun and a bleeding body with the words, the thoughts won't stop, help me. After seeing the troubling drawing, the parents said they would get their son help in the coming days and asked whether he could be returned to class because they needed to get back to their jobs. They never mentioned the gun they had bought for him days earlier as an early Christmas present. Now, Ethan Crumley went back to class after that, two hours later, in fact, and he emerged from a bathroom and began open to fire. Now, a hearing on the uh, witness testimony is scheduled for this Wednesday. Uh, we'll see what the judge does. And Ethan Crumley is obviously in prison and will be for the rest of his life because he pled guilty to all of the crimes that he committed and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. The Crumleys, however, look are looking at a little less time, but they face up to 15 years if convicted in prison and a $500,000 fine. Well, ladies and gentlemen, this is what it's coming down to. Motions in limine. Motions in limine are simply asking the judge to not allow in certain evidence. And one could argue that, yes, nearly all evidence that comes in against the defendant is devastating. That's the whole point. It's supposed to be overwhelming evidence so that the defendant can be convicted, right? But that evidence cannot be so gruesome. Yes, you get to know what somebody did and you're gonna get a couple of pictures, but you can actually overdo it, right? Autopsy photos, crime scene photos. Okay, pick your best, but it's gotta be something good, better, uh, a little more, you know, from, you know, prosecutors always say, well, judge, um, the defense is arguing it's the same photograph. They'll say it's not the same photograph, judge. It's a far away photograph. It's a close up photograph. It's a zoomed in photograph and it's a side photograph. All different angles to provide the jurors with the appropriate context of the situation. And sometimes the judge will say it is different, but they'll say, you know, limit it. But in this particular situation, the issue is the negligence that they were grossly negligent in having him go back to school. Yes, the prosecution has to present some evidence that a killing took place, but at a certain point, it could be too much because they're not charged with murder. They're charged with the basically criminally negligence of allowing to have the gun that committed the murder. I, know, I mean, hey, let me, don't get me wrong. If being a bad parent was a crime, the Crumleys are probably guilty. The question is, it's the first time that anyone's been prosecuted for something that you didn't know somebody was going to do. The Crumleys are probably going to get convicted here, and it'll probably get reversed on appeal. It's a dangerous precedent, ladies and gentlemen. I know everyone says, oh, but they bought him a gun. They saw the picture. Okay, so what's the big, what is the difference if he had gone to school, stolen a car, and drove over everybody and killed the same amount of people? You'd say, well, they didn't know he was going to do that, right? But because a lot of people... One, don't like guns. Two, they want punishment. All right, they got punishment. Crumley's going away. It's a dangerous precedent, ladies and gentlemen, when we start prosecuting parents. You know, for all those parents out there that maybe had a kid that gone astray even just a little bit, what if you were the one that was being charged? Your kid goes out in college or high school and drinks. You know he drinks underage, and they kill somebody. Should they prosecute you? You know he drinks. Hell, you may even allowed it on that particular day, though. Dangerous precedent, ladies and gentlemen. I know a lot of people don't agree with me on that one. That's my position. Next on the docket, somebody didn't get the Koberger memo. That's right. The memo about 
TV in the courtroom? So Spokane, Washington TV station, specifically KXLY, asked the court for permission to take video and still photographs of Koberger's upcoming hearing on January 26th. Well, had they not read the court order? Apparently not. Anyway, the judge denied it promptly, and uh, he attached a copy of his November 17th, 2023 order, in which he granted Koberger's request to remove media cameras from the courtroom, but said that the court would stream the proceeding on its own. And the judge is expected to live stream future hearings as well on the YouTube channel. Now, in his November uh, order, the judge accused the media of violating his request not to exclusively zoom in on Koberger's face and not to record before or after court sessions. Um, and since in Idaho, you can't appeal a judge's denial of access to the courtroom, this decision's been made. Very odd to me that something affecting everyone's constitutional rights there in Idaho wouldn't have any appellate review. Maybe somebody in the Idaho legislature should take a look at that. Anyway, so the court's going to uh, take the matters in their own hands, and they're going to um, handle all the uh, viewing. So instead of having the professionals, they're going to have a quality sound to it. Um, and obviously, if people violate the court order, kick those people out. But why punish everybody, right? Um, the public is interested in this criminal court proceedings. And, uh, you know, given the fact that the taxpayers are footing the bill for this, the people of Idaho have a right to um, see the proceedings. And we do know so far that the public records have revealed that the uh, part of Koberger's defense as of uh, last year for the last three quarters of it, well, it's a paltry $270,000 in the first three quarters, not including the last quarter. Now, obviously, there's no word on the cost of uh, the uh, prosecution thus far. A little more difficult because obviously you got people that are on salary, but there's going to be lots of experts, and if you put all the uh, time and energy into it, that's a lot of lot of money. I think the people have a right to know if the prosecution's doing a good job, did the defense do a good job, and if the defense sucked, should we demand some of that $270,000 back? Well, probably not, but they're doing their job. I think we have a right to see it. Hey, by the way, for all you ladies out there that just can't get enough of old Brian Koberger, don't forget to send him a birthday card. He turns 29 this week. Please don't send him a birthday card. All right, next. You guys keep asking for it. We'll bring it to you. Gypsy Rose Blanchard. Yes, we have taken it upon ourselves to watch what has uh, been aired, and we're going to bring you the highlights. Now, if you also noticed, old Gypsy Rose went to go see Harry Potter the Musical on Broadway. Maybe it's not a musical. Maybe we're just seeing it on Broadway. You know, I don't know what they're doing in Missouri. I know they wanted her out of the state because she was going to go live with her husband, who apparently is a simple school teacher. But they've been making the rounds. Good Morning America, a couple of other things. Um, now jetting off to New York City. Pretty fancy stuff on a school teacher's salary, I guess. Unless, of course, you're cashing in on it, so to speak. Anyway. We'll see. Gypsy Rose, truly a victim, or maybe she's just another grifter like her mom? I don't know. We'll see. All right. For those of you who aren't familiar with old Gypsy Rose Blanchard, she served eight years in prison for her role in killing her mother, Dee Dee Blanchard. 
Gypsy was a victim of Munchausen by proxy, which is a form of abuse in which the guardian seeks attention or sympathy by making their child ill or exaggerating their illnesses. So through a series of interviews conducted over 18 months, Gypsy um, took viewers through the various forms of abuse that she endured while also sharing some shocking new details about her upbringing. Now, the docuseries uh, features new interview footage from Gypsy's family members who uh, shared their side of the story as well. And here are a couple of the most shocking, most shocking developments in the docuseries. Now, Gypsy's father, Rod, recalls his relationship with Dee Dee, who he first met when he was 17 years old and still in high school. He says that uh, at the time, Dee Dee told him that uh, she was 21. Turns out she was actually 23. Gives new meaning to she's been cruising the high schools all day long. Anyway, they dated for about three months before uh, Dee Dee told him that uh, she was pregnant. Though they eventually got married, their relationship was short-lived as they separated before Gypsy was even born. Now, Gypsy says that she believes her mom's most devastating failure was her divorce from Rod, and her mother blamed Gypsy for their divorce because she wasn't the son that he wanted. Now, Gypsy says she finally uh, felt free when uh, she went to prison, calling it the best memory in her entire life. Also learned that after a car accident that left Dee Dee in the hospital, Gypsy spent time living with her grandfather, Claude Petrie, P-I-T-R-E, and a stepmother named Laura. Now, during this time, Gypsy alleges that her grandfather molested her. She was nine, she says, when that all took place. And her uh, grandfather, for the record, notes that that never happened happened. Now, Dee Dee's family opened up about her dark side with uh, Gypsy's cousin, Robert, Robbie Petrie, comparing how Dee Dee treated Gypsy to the film Mommy Dearest. Mommy Dearest was sick, but Dee Dee was sicker, he has said. He also recalls how Dee Dee was very upset when her father remarried and claims that Dee Dee tried to poison her stepmother by lacing her food with Roundup. Now, Robbie says that uh, Laura eventually died a slow, painful death that he believes was a result of her being fed Roundup. Dee Dee's brother, Evans Petrie, recalls how she was his mother's favorite. He also reveals that when Dee Dee was growing up, she had a heart murmur, which caused her mom to keep her from a lot of the activities. She wouldn't be able to go play outside, he explained. And then he goes on to suggest that Dee Dee's upbringing led to her Munchausen syndrome by proxy because she was the sick kid. Now, Gypsy also revealed that she dealt with a pain pill addiction, which she started about the age of 16, and she said that it was her escape from reality. Now, at the end of one of the episodes, Gypsy recalls one of her first relationships with a guy named Dan. And after meeting at a sci-fi convention, she recalls how they exchanged messages back and forth online, and she eventually opened up to him about her home life, noting that he was the first person she told she could walk. Now, believing she was 15 years old at the time, Gypsy says she would fantasize about what it would be like if she was older so that she could legally be together. Sometimes later, though, she found out her Medicaid card apparently revealed her true birth date and that she was, in fact, 19. With this new information, Gypsy's devised a plan to run away to be with Dan, who promised to take care of her. Stealing her mother's pain pills and cash, Gypsy recalls how she left her mother 
a uh, runaway note telling her that she knew she was 19 and wanted to live her own life as an independent woman. And then about 2 a.m., Gypsy, Gypsy hitchhiked to Dan's friend's house, where she learned that Dan was actually on parole, and, well, he couldn't leave the state. So no running away. Apparently it wasn't in Missouri. Anyway, after Gypsy tried to run away with Dan, Dee Dee found her phone and figured out where she was. Gypsy voluntarily returned home with her mom when Dee Dee said that um, she would uh, let her see Dan. However, when they returned, Gypsy said her mom smashed her computer and phone. She also chained her to the bed with handcuffs and a dog leash uh, that was connected to Dee Dee so that she could feel any time Gypsy moved in the middle of the night. Gypsy says she was chained to the bed for two weeks and her mother would not feed her every day as punishment for trying to run away. Gypsy also says her mother put a hex on her by mixing a cow tongue and Gypsy's menstrual blood into a mason jar with Dan and Gypsy's photo. As it relates to her relationship with Nick, we learn that his dark side opened up about his fantasies of murder, rape, and crime. At one point, he allegedly told her, Gypsy that is, that he was an alternate personality who is a 500-year-old vampire who loves to kill and would kill Gypsy's mother for her. Gypsy then said that Nick then directed her to research ways to commit murder, suggesting perhaps poison, maybe a little bit of arson perhaps. They eventually landed on the knife concept as the murder weapon, which Gypsy says that she stole from a local Walmart. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that is conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Well, Gypsy also recalled that the the uh, chilling final conversation she had with her mother the night she died. She adds that Nick instructed her that she should tell her mother she loves her one last time. So Gypsy gave her a big hug, and she remembers her mom saying, What's that for? I'm not dead yet. She then alleges that Nick commanded her to be naked and then took advantage of her. Why? Because he didn't rape his her mom so therefore she had to agree to let him rape her makes complete sense now during his trial back in november 2018 old nick go claimed that it was consensual sex when asked if he ever did anything sexual with Didi's body nick replied no however he did think about doing something to Didi's body and he did tell Gypsy that. Just keeps on coming, ladies and gentlemen. Keeps on coming. Next, an update on the uh, dumb criminal of the week last week. Yes, the man who brazenly attacked the Las Vegas judge was back in court to finally be given his sentence that the judge was so rudely interrupted in giving last week. So Deborah Redden, he faces uh, Judge Mary K. Holthus there in Clark County. But today he was donning a face mask, so he can't spit on the judge. Uh, and he had covering over his hands, and he had uh, sheriff deputies on either side of him. I-, I can't imagine why. Well, the judge kept her cool during the sentencing today and didn't mention the prior outburst whatsoever, but she did give him a sentence of between 19 to 48 months in prison, which is exactly what the prosecutors were asking for, so not a whole lot of leniency. I'm a little surprised the judge went forward with the sentencing, given the fact that she's now the named victim in the now new 13 charges in regards to the defendant's flying attack on the judge. He comes back tomorrow for charges in that. The fact that the judge didn't recuse basically is a screw you, and even if you think the sentence is harsh and I should have done it, appeal me is basically what the judge said. It's kind of her way of, well, sticking it to him. Anyway, 
Next on the docket, our dumb criminal of the day. Now, who has maybe not wanted to do this? Have you ever gone into a Bass Pro Shop, right? Maybe just with a swimsuit, though. Anyway, this guy dives into the pool at the Bass Pro Shop in Leeds, Alabama. Now, the cops say that the guy turns out to be a guy by the name of George Owen, George Owens, and he jumped in right before the store was going to close. Shows Owens yelling something to police officers as he uh, shamelessly hangs on the edge of uh, the pool, legs spread all apart there. And then he somehow, I don't know, I guess, should I say dismounts from the pool where he like lands on his head and smacks his head on the cement floor in the process and is lying there naked. What it turns out is, is that somehow Mr. Owens was driving in a car with two family members about 9 p.m. that night, but he hit a pole, a pole in the store's parking lot. So what did he do? He decided to run into the store get naked, um, and then jump himself into the pool. The police say that uh, once he was under arrest, Mr. Owens continued his poor judgment by kicking one of the officers in the groin, and he later uh, damaged a police car as well. So he's being in charge with the trespassing, criminal mischief, assault on a police officer, and also being charged with making vulgar comments. Oh, and a little note, he was taken to the psychiatric hospital for evaluation. So Mr. Owens, if you're fact crazy, not competent, mentally ill, you can always put that as a little asterisk under our dumb criminal of the day. But yes, jumping in, it's still dumb. I don't care what you do. You knew what you were doing. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the show today. Have a wonderful day and we'll see you tomorrow on Crime Talk.